Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. It is Paris, the autumn of 93. Terror, revolution, the king is dead. This is James Conlon. What if? What if? The great what ifs of history. What if the French Revolution had failed? If King Louis XVI of France and Queen Marie Antoinette had successfully escaped when they fled Paris? What if Napoleon hadn't attacked Russia, if D-Day had failed, if Mozart and Schubert had lived to 70 years of age, the American Civil War had turned out differently, the Cuban Missile Crisis had spun out of control. What if the American colonial army had lost the War of Independence? That they didn't was partially due to the discreet and massive aid provided by Beaumarchais. History would have been different. What if we simply rewrite history differently, at will? A quote, I shall change your past. I shall show you history as it should have been. I, Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais, will change the course of history. I, Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais, will change the course of history. Now, that is not the Beaumarchais of history is speaking, but the male protagonist in John Corigliano and William M. Hoffman's The Ghosts of Versailles, which the creators describe as a grand opera buffa with a cast of 46 roles in keeping with its birthplace, the Metropolitan Opera. It is also an opera within an opera, with some of its chief characters drawn from the spirit of Mozart and Rossini. Their initial idea to set La Mère Coupable, the guilty mother, the third of the Beaubarchet Figaro plays, was daunting. First, it wasn't really funny. And secondly, as Hoffman himself tells us, I was terrified at the prospect of writing a libretto that was bound to be compared to two certified masterpieces, which I was about to desecrate by turning them into prequels to La Mère Coupable. The opera world might not love me for my chutzpah. To which the composer added that the libretto enabled him to do exactly what he wanted, to play the not-quite-Mozartian idiom of the buffa characters against the not-quite-modernism of the ghost figures. The conceit of the plot revolves around the fantasy that the ghost of Beaumarchais is in love with that of Marie Antoinette. To make her happy, he wants to recast history as it should have been, might have been. The ghosts proceed simultaneously on several planes, which coexist interdependently, each with its own musical vocabulary. The ghost world of an eternal present, or a present eternity, is contemporary. The music mixes atonal, microtonal, and occasional serial harmony in a free-form and aleatoric rhythmic structure. Let's look at those three distinct styles that make up the harmonic and structural language of ghosts. One can imagine three concentric circles on the outside, 
That is eternity, the world of ghosts. It includes historic figures from the period of the French Revolution, King Louis XVI, his queen Marie Antoinette, and Beaumarchais, naturally, as protagonists. The second concentric circle is an evocation of the French Revolutionary world and the Reign of Terror, including, and up until October 16, 1793, the date Marie Antoinette met her fate at the guillotine. third innermost circle are the members of the Almaviva household, whom we know from the previous operas. This is the only part of this opera that is drawn somewhat loosely from La Mer Coupable. Here's Beaumarchais' operatic theatrical world, sometimes neoclassic. Sometimes a latter-day romp through reminiscences of Mozart and Rossini. Oh, <laughs> 
The American Revolution, and above all, the establishment of our nation's democracy, were deeply influenced by the French Enlightenment philosophers. Reciprocally, the French Revolution owes much to the example of the American colonists who had demonstrated that a populace could overthrow royal domination. It is here that our narratives intersect, and, as promised, it is time to recount the role Beaumarchais played in the American Revolution. With that, I return to another what-if question. What if Beaumarchais had not advocated so passionately for the American colonial army and had not followed up that advocacy with practical aid, much of which was at his own expense? Might the American Revolutionary War have failed? The answer, of course, is we don't know. But we do know that Beaumarchais's massive support was critical to the victory at the Battle of Saratoga, which is often identified as the turning point in the war in favor of the colonial army. He had collected and supervised the transport of 200 field pieces, 300,000 muskets, 100 tons of powder, 3,000 tents, large amounts of ammunition. Each of 30,000 men received a blanket, a pair of shoes, two pair of woolen stockings, and miscellaneous buttons, buckles, needles, thread, pocket knives, bolts of wool, and silk for uniforms. All of this can be read on the Internet in an eight-page document approved for release by the CIA Historical Review Program the 22nd of September, 1993. 1993. Not 1793, nor even 1893. That would have made more sense. After all, the information and the names contained in the report on Beaumarchais would have long ceased to have been a security question. But no, 1993. It is impossible to fathom why the government would keep this information classified for such a long time, releasing it almost 220 years after the fact. It bespeaks an enormous interest in the actions revolving around Beaumarchais and raises the question, why so much secrecy? The explanation may be found with some unsavory details of the early years of the American Congress. We will return to them shortly. But what about La Mère Coupable, the guilty mother? The author had stated that after Figaro, he would write a sequel. It was finished in January of 1791, but not produced until June of 1792, almost three years into the Revolution. By that time, Mozart had been dead for six months, and Rossini was four months old. We are a year before the Reign of Terror officially had begun, and the events portrayed in The Ghost of Versailles. Inevitably, chastened by so many dramatic and often embittering experiences, his third work is no longer lighthearted, 
In fact, he called it a prose drama, asserted by some to be the first in the history of French theatre, of what was to eventually replace the grand classic works of the previous two centuries. Only three protagonists have appeared in all three plays, Figaro, of course, Rosina, and the Count. Suzanne, who made her appearance in The Marriage, is now Figaro's wife of twenty years. Although we do not see him, he has been killed in battle, Carobino's memory is very much alive. Summed up, over the years, the Count has continued to neglect Rosina. She, virtuous and long-suffering, has succumbed for a single night, we are told, to the temptations of love. She becomes pregnant and writes to the father who is away at war. She tells him that she is pregnant. What they had done was wrong, and she would never see him again. Determined, but also prophetic words, upon receipt of the letter, he answers and then purposefully allows himself to be killed in battle, signing the letter in blood. She, somewhat inadvisedly, keeps the letter and locks it up. It will be stolen at a critical point. boy, Léon, grows to adulthood and is now in love with Florestine, a young woman of the same age who loves him. She has grown up in the Almaviva household as the ward of the Count. She is actually his illegitimate daughter. The young lovers have known each other from childhood. The now-deceased father of Léon is, in fact, Carabino. Let me tell you about my other characters. Almaviva's wife, Rosina. For the last 20 years, her husband has resented her because... Remember Almaviva's young page, Cherubino. He and the Countess had a child. 
he has fallen in love with Florestine. She is the Count's offspring by a, a nameless woman of high rank. Here is the problem. Almaviva has never forgiven his wife's infidelity, and so he refuses to give his consent for the marriage of his daughter and her son. Instead, he has promised his daughter to his best friend. The music fluidly moves through various styles. The timelessness of the ghost suggests a freedom with anachronism which finds musical expression in a panoply of styles. It contains moments of great lyric tenderness. The young Florestine and Léon turns into an almost Straussian quartet.
in a farcical scene at a reception for the British ambassador at the Turkish embassy with a considerable dose of Orientalism. His Excellency, the English Ambassador. cameo appearance of Samira, presumably the lover of the Pasha, dressed in an elaborate Arabic garb to amuse the guests. She sings a rather curious text. I am in a valley, and you are in a valley. I have no he or she camel in it. In every house there is a cesspool. He beat me, then wept, stole my water, and then complained. Some day it's honey, some day onions, but repetition will teach even a donkey. That's life. Marilyn Horne was in the Met premiere and Patti Lupone in the revised version at Los Angeles Opera. and a show-stopping, raucous Turkish cabaletta. Cadenza. Yeah, 
The first half of the opera will end, in the tradition of Mozart and Rossini, with a massive finale. Almost everyone in the cast is on stage. After Saimira has charmed all with her comically seductive dance, she invites the dancing women forward. Figaro, dressed as one of them, joins in and uses the opportunity to steal the precious jewels from Count Almaviva's pocket. Only Bergeris's servant, Wilhelm, sees him and with his heavy Teutonic accent, shouts out for all to hear. Pandemonium ensues, interrupted briefly by a local orchestra of rietas, a northern African double-reed instrument that Corigliano employed several times in his compositions. A woman with a hat bellows, This is not opera. Wagner is opera. The attentive ear will hear the Tristan motive emerging from the orchestra. The bedlam reaches a climax, Figaro uses it to escape, and then a blackout. Act one is over. See you next time. This is James Conlon. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera.
If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.